Welcome to the centennial episode number 100. Everybody's been waiting for it. I've been waiting for it. Uh, hopefully her audience has been waiting for it. Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, www.courtroomsciences.com. Partner in crime, the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Steve Wood. Steve? Bill, how are you? Glad, glad to be here. I'm glad, glad to get a hundred. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, we've made it this far, and I, I had no idea where this was going. I have no, the one good thing from COVID is that we developed this podcast, and uh, it appears to be a hit based on the the, the feedback that we're getting. Um, should I just start with the Kanaski rant? I think you should hit it. Yep. Okay. What better and way to start? And I've been dying because this, this this is happening every week. Okay, Steve, it's not pre-boarding. Okay. It's boarding, all right? So I am on a flight at Chicago Midway. I'm, I'm about to board the flight. I'm on Southwest Airlines. I'm A1, always. Now, Paul Motes is going to be busting my balls here in a second about Southwest, but I'll, I'll get to him in a second. He's going to bring up all his United, you know, BS. And there, and I'm counting them, 17 wheelchairs, Okay. Hey, I'm a reasonable man. Should they be on the? Yeah, of course. Right. Well, they wheel all these people down all 17. It's amazing how they jump out of those wheelchairs like jackrabbits. If you notice that. Right. So 17 go. And then there's like six other people. Right. Just hand in their pre-board thing. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, why are they getting on this plane? Why are they pre-board? Right. So it's making me nuts. So you got roughly 25 people getting on board before a one. So I'm really a 26. Is that a fair assessment, right? Yeah. Now, here, here's the best part. I, I land in Orlando and they come on the, you know, welcome to, you know, Orlando. We're so happy to, you know, enjoy your Disney trip. Oh, by the way, you know, ring your call button if you require real wheelchair access off of the plane. Guess how many damn buttons went off? None. One. Yeah. One. What is up with that? That's bullshit. Every flight, every, every, every flight. So it's not called pre-boarding. It's called boarding. Okay. They're like group one. It's, 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 it's pissing me off. Sit there, put in all these airline miles and all these people get off. Right. Now we're going to have some, asso yeah, some association. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Don't, don't get me started. Some association is not going to watch this and we're going to get sued. Right. Saying that, you know, I'm discriminating or something like that. I can see where this is going. Well, we're already in trouble in the first two minutes. Uh, episode. What better way to start? I know. Episode number 100. Uh, two of our favorite guests that have joined us. And we lost Bassett. We lost Roush because they, they actually, um, they didn't blow us off. They had some emergencies come up. Uh, but I got Roush's uh, info for later, which we're, I'm going to share with you. Uh, Paul Motes, Chicago, Illinois, wearing uh, the Cubs gear. Paul, how are you? What's going on in Chicago? You know, I'm, I'm doing well. I, I, I'm uh, I, I'm ha happy that it's not snowing outside right now, given that it's December third. And you know, I'm 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 really sad to, to hear your your horror story about. Uh, Here we go. You know, flying. Here we uh, go. You know. Here we go. You just gotta you know fly a real airline like uh, United or American. Well, maybe not American. American's but, terrible. Uh, you know, Delta is pretty good too. Delta's. Uh, 
you know, you can, um, you know, get status and fly uh, across the ocean to real places like Europe and Asia with the real airlines. So, okay. um, but can I mute him? Can I mute him? Where's the, where's my mute button? <laughs> Jesus. Well, that got off to a shaky start. And then we have uh, a good friend from Los Angeles, Brad Hughes. Uh, he's this, this guy takes me to the uh, Dodgers games when I'm out there and uh, screws up my sleep schedule by keeping me up so late. Brad, what's going on out in L.A.? How are you? Everything's good. Uh, my Trojans were celebrating Lincoln Riley getting hmm. just ripped from Oklahoma, watching uh, watching uh, Coach Kelly come up with just the greatest Southern accent overnight <laughs> down in LSU. That was the most uh, bizarre. Th- he's like, thank you for having me as your coach. And I'm going, just, who the just, hell is this guy? The fastest, uh, all of a sudden I have an accent move. Uh, I can't not comment on being a million uh, mile status with Delta, uh, a diamond medallion as I am. The fact that you would allow yourself to fly Southwest, I mean, Southwest. Oh, there you go. Remarkable. Remarkable. This whole thing is getting cut out. Southwest is going to be not happy with us. Delta, shout out Delta. absolutely highest quality i don't have delays with delta ever uh, the only time i struggle is when i fly to chicago because then i gotta go la minneapolis chicago uh and that's, and that's just a mistake on your part because you know it's a united <laughs> hub i mean you get united fly, fly the friendly skies man i'm global service with united they're great i have no delays they uh wow. they send me gifts and you get yeah, other things. And you got to fly oh, yeah. Polaris. Then you get to be in the Polaris uh, first class, which is, you know, nice. Yeah. Well, the, the actual Polaris is nice. But, wow. Uh, you know, this is the CSI 100th uh, podcast on travel. And uh, yeah. uh, makes bad decisions. <laughs> should, we, should, we, should we trail off into how some of these unnamed companies have safety is your top priority blasted oh, everywhere? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, just, and it gets worse. Top. It's getting worse. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not true. Well, listen, I want to start off with topic one. Um, Brad, I'm going to start with you. Um, I'd like to say we're post COVID, but we're certainly not. Uh, but a lot of things have changed, particularly over the last six months. Uh, I've consulted on a ton of trials in the last six months. Um, and I know everywhere's uh, different. What, what's going on in California? And um, are they doing trials? How are they doing them? And what are they doing with juries? What's, what's the update from California? Yeah, so we are back doing trials. Uh, masks are required uh, at all times during the trial. Um, in LA County, the jury gets picked in a huge, huge, huge courtroom. Uh, they're all six feet apart. Uh, it makes picking the jury quite the experience because they're scattered about this whole room. And then eventually they all move in a little bit closer together into sort of an extended box. But we're not using the normal courtrooms. We're using the big ones that are usually long cause courtrooms where you'd have, you know, 24 plus jurors because you expect the people to drop off. Um, the two biggest takeaways, despite everybody's hope and, and optimism, Verdicts in LA County and in California are worse post-COVID than they were pre-COVID, not even close. Uh, Second thing is trial lawyers are having a hard time figuring out a mask that works for them. And I've seen everything from just a little tiny clear box on the mask so you can, you know, jurors can see your face to like a fully clear thing that they're wearing over most of their mouth. Um, 
there's a, a market out there for however long this is going to last. And I think it's going to be another year plus of this candidly. Um, you know, I think in Southern California, masks are, are going to be probably pretty close to permanent for a lot of places. Um, but, you know, I think there's a marketplace out there for somebody who wants to create a trial lawyer's mask, something that covers, but also we can see what you're saying. doesn't fog up. Um, but yeah, I, I will say, and I'm sure we're going to talk about more, but the verdicts are crazy. The verdicts are crazy, in my opinion, 10% because people have changed their mindset and 90% because my fellow defense lawyers have done a piss poor job about trying to get in touch with jurors in a, in a post post COVID quote world. Well, you said it, you said it. And, and Paul, uncle Polly, as, as I call him, and Brad just said it every time I say that on stage or on a, or on a webinar, there's like, some people get mad at me and I'm like, well, Hey, I'm right. Well, I know I'm right. But Brad just said it. Um, Paul, what are you seeing out there? And what, what personal things have you done as, as an attorney to figure out how to reach jurors now relative to the way you did, you know, two years ago? Well, having taken one of those ridiculous verdicts earlier this year in, in Los Angeles, I, I definitely echo what, what Brad is saying. And uh, I can also say that at the time, we were required to be masked at all times. I don't know if that's still the same way in Los Angeles. I know here in Cook County, the judges are, are starting to allow witnesses to take masks off when they're testifying and lawyers taking their masks off when they are um, either doing opening, closing, or examination, provided that they're socially distant. I mean, it's hard uh, yeah. to, to yeah. connect with a jury when you are uh, not able to see their face and they're not able to see your face in its entirety. I, I will tell you, trying to do a closing argument with a mask on or an opening statement, I, I don't know what it is, but uh, the heat, uh, the, the hot air coming out of my mouth, uh, <laughs> yeah, walked right into that soft burn. There you uh, go. But, you know, it was like, it, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. What, what I ended up doing to try and get around it until the, the courtroom deputy kept yelling at me is I would hold a water bottle in my hand open <laughs> like I was taking a drink just, just to keep... Uh, just to keep the, the mask police off me uh, because it was killing me. It was honestly killing me. Uh, but with, with regard to your, your broader question about connecting with jurors, I mean, it's still, it's still trial. And I think that there's still a lot of ring rust from for defense trial lawyers. I, I mean, we're we're not we're we're not the the best as a as an in, or as a side, not as an industry, uh, compared to our plaintiff uh, brethren. They take more cases to trial than than we do. That's the the, the simple fact. And all the defense lawyers are fighting uh, for the business, so it's it's automatically diluted. I just think we all need to get back into training, get back in the front of mock juries, get uh, and, and take these cases to trial. But remember how to make an argument. Remember that this is not a Zoom argument. Yeah. Uh, you, they get to see your entire body. Uh, they get to see, you know, we've developed a lot of bad habits over the last 21 months. Which in your you know? case, which in your case, seeing your whole body and all your bad habits, well, I, that, know, would, that would be an dad, instant turn off if I'm juror number five. I mean, shit. You know, my, my bad habits include bourbon and Cheez-Its and sitting on the couch a lot. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I, I fully take ownership of that fact. 
But it's it, the same thing. We as a society, we as the world have, have, this is how we're interacting with people now. It's not, you know, it's not face-to-face -face communication as much. I, I'm still trying to do as much face-to-face -face communication to be a normal human <laughs> that remembers what life was like pre-pandemic, yeah. um, running around with my hair on fire uh, as, as possible. So, you know, there, there's a lot of work. I think the defense bar needs to get back up into the swing of things and, and really start remembering how to try cases. Yeah. And one thing that, um, and the reason I have bags under my eyes and I look like hell is um, a lot. We're doing a lot of mock trials and a lot of focus groups and we, we always have, but I think now people have finally figured out, particularly the insurance companies, like we can't, we can't be asleep uh, at the wheel here. Uh, we have got to be prepared because that's one of the main causes of the nuclear verdicts is they're not really assessing these cases. They're not getting rid of the way they should. They're not testing it with, with, with a real panel. And it's a really good way to get burned. And one of the things that we've been testing, and again, we've been very, very successful with this this year. And Brad, I want you to talk about this, is the concept of counter anchoring damages. Because I'm telling you, whoever gets up there, Panish, Rally, whoever it is, and they say, I want $100 million. And you get up there and you just kind of shrug your shoulders and say you disagree. Brad, that's not going to be enough. You, they've got to have a different number. Otherwise, you're going to get tattooed. Yeah. So Gary Dordick is, is doing opening arguments today in a, in a case in, a, in Los Angeles where an elevator apparently fell down an elevator shaft on a student at UCLA uh, and caused him to uh, have damage to his groin and groin extremities, if you can get the drift there. Uh, obviously, <laughs> Gary Dordick, that case is a case worth a lot of money. So I was watching it doing it and a friend of mine sent me this thing where a, a claims adjuster put something up on LinkedIn or something and it said something to the effect of nuclear verdicts are between one and five million but I predict we're going to start seeing verdicts that will be more like Armageddon and those will be verdicts at 50 million and whereas we used to see those for mass tort cases we're now going to start seeing them in uh, personal injury cases and the comment was from a, a jury um essentially a plaintiff sided jury focus group individual. Uh, and his comment was, imagine thinking justice is Armageddon. And yeah. that's, that's the problem. Yeah. You know, we, we, the, the insurance adjuster playbook is so old and worn out. It's just oh. so old and nobody in our industry, God bless them, seems to want to really sit down and say, I'm throwing this away because it's broken and it, it doesn't work. You know, we're all sports fanatics. If you have a team that's running the same play and you're losing yards or throwing an interception or giving up a home run, I mean, whatever, every single time. Yeah. You say I feel attacked because you're talking about my bears right now. <laughs> you, you fire the coach. I mean, you guys would fire Matt Nagy at the end of the year, but you fire the coach and say, this doesn't work. Throw the playbook away. I mean, what's crazy is that you try and sit down with the client and you say, the case isn't worth $100 million, but we need to try and tell the jury the case is worth $6 million and here's why. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? Yeah, there's a risk. I get it. The conventional wisdom is, well, the jury's just going to split the difference. So you should say zero. Well, no. If true. you can it's sit down true. and explain your, your yes. six and say, Here, here's exactly why. And the $100 is not a real number and here's why it's not realistic. And that's, yeah. Not, yeah. that's not justice. 
Justice is the six million. Justice is a balancing of scales between two parties, not giving one person a blank check. So, but our, our, our until our mentality changes, um, we're gonna have a problem. Now, not to draw on. One thing that I think uh, Bob Tyson wrote an article for Southern California Defense uh, Magazine, and he was talking about hourly rates. And he made the point that if you were a person who got sued for something catastrophic, um, and you went to a really good lawyer, and the lawyer said, you, okay, here's what my rates are, and your life was on the line essentially for this. This was going to cost you your house and your family. Uh, and would you sit down with that lawyer and say, here's the deal. I'm going to pay you uh, a lower hourly rate than what you're worth. Uh, then when you send me your bill, I'm going to audit it. And then when I audit it, I'm going to wait 60 to 90 days to pay you. And I want you to say thank you at the end of it. You would never do that because you'd say this case is too important for my life. Now, the reality is there's a lot of bad defense lawyers who sit there and say, I'll take the high volume cases, be swatted around by the carrier because it's a high volume of cases. And then the carrier is shocked when the, when the lawyer that they get who's trying the case isn't a very good lawyer, isn't a very good trial lawyer. Um, so just as an industry, we have to change. And I don't know who's going to be the first person to stand up and say, we'll be the people to, to make the shift. Yeah. And that's a, it's a huge problem. Again, every time I say it, I, I get in trouble, but you're, I think you're, you're completely right, Paul. Um, again, this is kind of like the redheaded stepchild topic that no one wants to, it's the dirty little secret in the defense bar. Paul, there, not every attorney is, is equal. I mean, I've seen you two guys in action. I, I've seen some bad lawyering and I ran up into a guy in New York city earlier this week he was talking about nuclear verdicts and he leaned right over to me he was giving me a ride to the airport and he said a lot of this is just really incompetent lawyering from the defense bar and um it's just it's it's hard to fathom that but but paul that's that's true because you paul you parachute in on a lot of cases and then you've got this big shit sandwich that they give you right right before trial i mean you've got to see some just nightmarish things that, that then you end up getting stuck with it right oh oh absolutely and it's you know i i can't recommend bob tyson's book on this enough uh you know it, it's one of those things where he makes a great point about counter anchoring and anchoring there's there's great academic research out there yeah. that says you gotta argue damages yeah. but the problem is not just at trial when we get nuclear verdicts, like the verdict I just circulated in the chat, 730 million for a 73 year old getting killed by a truck. 730 million, oh. that's insanity. After they'd already settled for like 50 million with all the other defendants, they got a $730 million verdict, single plaintiff or single decedent. Just astronomical. But the, the way that I see this really festering, you know, Brad hit it right on the head. You've got bad practices, old practices, both at the law firm and at the insurance carrier. At the law firm is the one that I can fix. And because I see it time and time again, where the mentality is we don't want to do anything to upset the insurance carrier. So we are going to do I don't want to say the bare minimum, but damn close to the bare minimum in terms of the legal work required. I'm writing a paper right now with one of my colleagues about this exact issue. It's it's really about 
focusing on how you defuse the nuclear bomb before you get to trial. Yeah. That means argue damages. That means depose the damage witnesses. That means having the depositions of the doctors that help your help the mitigation argument, help the non-economic, rein in those non-economic. And finally, you got to have damage experts yeah. because <laughs> the plaintiffs, you know, they're going to break every rule in the book. Nick Raleigh is a prime example of that, but he is successful as he does it. Even if he gets admonished, he's just going to turn to the jury and say, you have to forgive me. I'm passionate on my client seeking justice. Don't hold it against him or her. The defense lawyer, we can't make those sorts of flagrant mistakes because yeah. if we get wrapped, you know, wrapped on the knuckles or punched in the jaw, the judge, the jury's going to just associate that with the big corporation and make us pay even more. So it, it, it's it really means from the law firm sense, we have to work up damages and we can't just send the unexperienced associate with the first year or second year taking a deposition of a key damages witness. You can't do that because you have to get things locked in for trial and it's got to be a trial focus from day one. Yeah. I mean, Steve, so Steve Wood during COVID, um, you got on some webinar and listened, uh, was it Claggett that ran it, right? And uh, I mean, these guys, and it was, it was like a lot of plaintiff attorneys, right? I mean, talk, Steve, talk about the, the, the themes that they were talking about, because they essentially said, you know, once these courtrooms open, you know, reopen, you know, we're, we're going balls to the wall here, pedal to the metal. And, and and what I'm seeing, because I think what you're about to say is I'm seeing exactly this play out. These guys ain't settling cases. I mean, Steve, talk about that because I mean, he they were he was just ripping the crowd, right? Yeah, I think one of the one of the things, and we've talked about it before, and Paul and Brad are touching on it too, is is changing the way things are being approached. But I can tell you, plaintiff attorneys don't want to settle anymore. I mean, what, what motivation do they have to settle the case? You know, they they assume that defense ha probably hasn't probably worked up the case properly, hasn't done a lot of work on the depositions to make sure their witnesses present well. You know, maybe they have an attorney that is presenting or that's going to be going forward and has tried one case. It's not prepared. It'll perform against the plaintiff. Why would they settle the case? Right. I mean, it just makes sense. They'd rather just roll the dice and try to get their big verdicts and, you know, ask for the moon and get the stars and go yeah. from there. Um, but I think to your point is what the plaintiff's bar is basically saying is, you know, you guys are weak if you're settling. There's no reason why you should settle because we've outmatched them. We've outgunned them. We've all yeah. collaborated. We've all talked. We know what we're going to do. We've shared our secrets, what works, what doesn't work. The defense bar is not doing that. So let's just use it against them. And let's just ram these verdicts down their throats because they're going to do about it. They're not going to, they're going to take it and just keep paying out and then go on to the next one because they don't want to do what they need to do and prevent these big verdicts. And, and Brad uh, said it, the playbook, the playbook is the same playbook. It's the same damn playbook and everybody knows it. And I mean, Brad, they just fully just take advantage of it. Right. Yeah. You know, the case and you, and you see how the plaintiff lawyers who are really good do it. It's, it's hard to go back to your next case after the jury comes back and say, I'm going to do the same thing I did before. No, you ought to react and say, <laughs> I should take the deposition of not only the claimant, but all of his or her kids and their relatives and their neighbors and their doctors. And 
if I were to go to a traditional insurance carrier and say, here's my budget for litigate for a trial, a pretrial, um, I'd like to take 43 depositions of individuals who are key witnesses, who the jury is going to believe because, okay, I think Mr. John Doe could be lying about his brain injury, but when his wife comes in saying that he doesn't remember his name sometimes and his neighbor says, yeah, he forgets his name sometimes, and somebody else who's, you know, an unbiased party says, yeah, you know, John's not the same guy he was, all of a sudden, you're sitting there, you know, adjuster in the third or fourth row of the pew saying, wow, the jury's really going to believe that. Well, yeah, you know, those are things we needed to, you know, have at our fingertips. But, you know, I, I think that the solution in the short term, because I don't think that the playbook's going to change because there, there's just, it's too easy for the kids to say, we're just going to settle smaller cases and we're going to try and manage the nuclear ones when they come in. Because most nuclear cases are a result of bad lawyering early on in the case, sometimes really bad claims management, a failure to seek bad cases when they're there. Um, and then the second thing I think is we need to start being more creative with how we can cap some of the damages. So I would go, if you have a bad case, I think you go to the plaintiff lawyer and say, let's do a high low. Yeah. And maybe the low is way higher than what your adjuster wants. But you got to say, look, I'm not worried about the low. I'm worried about the high. Yeah. The high is what I'm negotiating. I mean, the low. Okay. So, so if the low is five and the high is 25, I got news for you. So long as it's not 50 or 60 million, then maybe I'm getting you a better deal. Um, but, but part of it is our attitude as defense lawyers is we don't collaborate. We can pretend that we do, but we don't. We don't share like they do. You know, they and they fly their plane to a, a beach resort or a ski trip and they all sit around and talk about i crushed this expert hire that expert they're awesome and they sit there and they gas each other up and they tell each other here's the arguments we're using to work and then they go out they disperse and they do that defense lawyers we get together at conferences you know we slug drinks we try and find new clients we don't share at all it's not like hey you know this argument worked great in this verdict in this jury you know so I, I think the, the big point is we don't try enough cases. Oddly enough, the way that we get lower verdicts is trying more cases. Yeah. Um, you know, we younger lawyers don't have any skill set whatsoever to try cases. They barely have skill sets right now to take depositions. Oh. Um, you know, and so yeah, it's a, it's a crisis in some respects because I grew steep. Yeah, I mean, why these guys? Why why not try the case? Yeah, why in the Even world? Else, else, yeah, know? yeah, Paul, and I know, and, and yeah, I know both you guys have go through this. Um, how do you, what do you do with the, the younger attorney that needs to develop? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Cause I I'm telling you, I said this last week in about seven years, we're all in deep shit. <laughs> you get oh, the yeah. veteran people retire. I mean, it's going to be, then it's going to be Armageddon. So, so for me, I've, I've got a portion of my practice is corporate. And so I've got a lot of arbitrations. And so that's a lot. That's a, a good, I don't want to call it a scrimmage, but an arbitration is a scrimmage for a trial. Um, so that's good. You're kind of controlled environment. Um, I mean, not to get totally sidebar. I think the younger generation is just a totally different mentality than, than ours. Uh, putting, it mild, putting it mildly. <laughs> putting it mildly. Uh, you know, part of, part of where the law firms are going to have to change is, you know, look, when I was a young lawyer, 2,100 hours was the standard. You know, that's what you did. You grinded and you learned and you got better um, and you got paid a little bit of money. But the reality was you worked hard and you moved up the ladder. These folks today, ain't no way. They're not doing that. They want to be home by six. You know, they, their mentality is just different and they want to be paid a lot more. and They want to work a lot less. So I don't you know, from a law firm perspective, I'm not sure how we're going to manage that. either. But 
Polly, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think that uh, Brad hit it right on the head. I just as a personal anecdote, I remember interviewing for a firm um, early on in my career, and they offered me the same amount of money I was making, but they said 2,200 billable hours, and I'm like, 50 grand for. 2,200 billable hours? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, granted, it was the Great Recession, but, you know, holy cow. I, you know, I was a young lawyer at that point, And I said, no, thanks, but no thanks. But, you know, I, I think part of the challenge that we face, granted, I'm not 40 yet, uh, but I see this in my supervision. I see this, you know, I, you know, as a managing partner for three years at my old firm, you know, trying to identify associates that still have a work ethic, because the only way you're going to be a trial lawyer is if you have a work ethic, you know, granted, yeah, people can have the nine to five, nine to six, whatever, you're not going to be a a world-class trial lawyer. But there's still enough of us millennials that will work our ass off. And I think that the defense bar has to recognize that. They have to reward that and put them in a place for advancement and education. And so what I try to do on every one of my trials is make sure there's an associate. I'm going to make sure they're taking a witness. They're going to handle key motion arguments. I'm going to be right there. To make sure if things go off the rails, I can violate the one lawyer, one task rule, but I will violate it to get in there to save things. But that's the way I learned, you know, on catastrophic cases, arguing motions, taking early, you know, taking, uh, you know, the, the damages experts in a, in a contested liability case. You know, you work your way up. You can't expect that a young associate or even a mid-level associate nowadays is going to have the necessary trial experience to try a catastrophic case. You may have an associate that came came from some small claims plaintiffs or defense firm or a lean firm. Those trials aren't the same thing. It does give you a good base of experience. But when you're going against the Panishes, the Raleigh's, the Joe Powers, um, you know, the the Mark Lanier's of the world, you got to match their expertise with with the same level of expertise. But there's also a duty to educate and bring people along because I'm sorry, trial lawyers can't do these catastrophic cases by themselves. It just doesn't happen. And we need to have our team mentality so that everybody learns. Well, I think a lot of it too is, is when we, you know, the obligation I think we have is, is to our clients. And part of it is I think we need to start getting a lot more comfortable with having really hard conversations and, and going to yes, I agree. the presidents of claims and sitting down over, you know, a, a several bottles of wine and saying, look, <laughs> um, I, I'm going to have a hard conversation with you. And I hope that you respect this as friends and as, as your lawyer, but here's the deal. Um, you got to start recognizing catastrophic cases when they come in. You got to stop allowing people to marginalize cases that are going to turn into bad ones. So it's it shouldn't be up to the first person who looks at the file to say it was a loss of consciousness for like maybe two seconds. So this mild TBI claim is, is bogus. I got news for you. You're not a neuropsychologist. You don't understand why Nick Valley is going to take that claim and do a whole bunch of stuff with it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and really, I think we need to start having a lot more serious conversations. You know, the, the insurance company wants to spend as little money with us as they do with selling a case. That's the business. Yep. But I think we have to start saying this case is worth potentially several layers of insurance and certainly within your layer up to a high level. 
So the budget I'm giving you should, and it necessarily will include mock juries. It will include several focus groups. Don't argue with me about it. I'm telling you, if yeah. you're going to trust me, this is what you got to do. That way, when you show up, you know, four months before trial, if you're a good lawyer or earlier, and you've got your mocks and your focus groups ready to go before you get to experts and stuff, that way it's not like, oh, well, I don't know. That's not part of the budgeting for this. It's got to be the built in. It's what we do on every case. The it's what the plaintiffs are doing. It's what the plaintiffs are doing. They're, 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 they, oh, these guys have built jury they build courtrooms in their offices and they bring in focus groups and do a full thing so that it's like the real deal. Uh, for us, you know, we, most of us don't have courtrooms in our offices, so we don't get the, the, the dress rehearsals like they do, but these guys are all doing it. So guess what? You know, we're, we need to catch up. We're way behind on that. Yeah. Steve, Steve, um, Steve and I do a ton of mock trials and, and focus groups uh, together. And, and what's, kind of mind-boggling and we're not going to mention names we're in enough this podcast is in enough trouble already yeah so let's not i'm not going to dogpile on anybody but steve uh, how, how many like just really really bad attorney presentations have you seen i mean it's shocking it's, yeah it's it's bad um you know and I, I did a solo podcast on this a while back about attorney credibility and about presentations and yeah, it's, it's, it's very bad. And, you know, and, and the point I made in that and the point I think I really want to drive home because, you know, it's important for, for younger attorneys to understand that this is a, one of your shots to kind of put yourself up there and get the senior associates to see you, to get your clients to see you. And a lot of times, for lack of a better term, to steal a Kanaskiism, I mean, they get up there and shit the bed. Um, it's, it's, they just, they don't. I love they, this job. They don't, they don't, you know, it's just the preparation, you know, and it's really stale. It's, it's really, I'm going to read directly from my thing and I'm not going to look up at the jury and I'm going to read off my PowerPoints. It's just not, it's not engaging. And then go figure why when you get the, the verdicts back, the verdicts tend to go against that attorney. And, you know, as I've said before, the jurors love nothing more than they can't wait to tell you how bad they think that attorney is. Yeah, they love that. Yeah. And I think one of the things actually I wanted to ask both of you guys, and we keep talking about it actually, you know, about training and about getting additional help for these younger attorneys. What do you guys think, Paul? I'll start with you. You know, what is it when we, we keep talking about training all the time, training and training, training, what would that training look like in your opinion, as far as what you think these younger attorneys should be doing and getting in the defense bar should be getting to improve their chances and improve their, their opportunities against the plaintiff bar? I think that if we can really get our clients on board with the concept of multiple mock trials or multiple focus groups where these young attorneys are giving presentations, that's how I got my shot. Yep. I got asked the day before a mock trial when another associate of my old firm, when I was an associate, shit the bed. And they said, hey, we need you to jump in here. I put together a plaintiff's presentation and I ended up, you know, not even, even though there were really bad facts in it, I, I got favorable verdicts from three panels of juries. Uh, you know, you got to, you have to teach people that it's not just reading right off of uh, a closing. I was actually, uh, I was talking with a, a claims adjuster about a case that has billions of potential exposure and apparently the defense attorney just read the closing how do you do that how in the world does that happen i i don't know I, good again, god 
I, I don't understand it, but that's what they did. It, and I will say it wasn't a traditional insurance defense firm. It was more of a silk stocking firm. But hearing that, and I'm just like, okay, they get paid all the big bucks, and yet you are as charismatic as a pile of used copy paper. That doesn't that doesn't inspire confidence. Yeah, <laughs> as Brad said earlier, yeah, they're getting the paid. They're getting paid right, but they're when it, when the the when the rubber hits the road, they're they're failing. They're not ringing the bell. So you you got to have ways in place to make sure that the young attorneys can uh, present the cases. And and sometimes it might not be a formalized mock trial. But again, what Brad says, I can't agree with more. You got to talk to the insurance carriers to allow us to do things in firm to roundtable the case. And maybe that's where you start with these younger attorneys and, and realize, okay, we're just going to grab a bunch of secretaries and paralegals together. You are going to be the defendant. You're going to be the co-defendant and you're going to be the plaintiff. You got 45 minutes each, present your case. And we're going to get feedback as it goes. There's the only cost is the lawyer time. That's not, you know, engaging you and Steve, but it's start of the progress. You can go from that to a focus yeah. group, to a full-blown mock trial. And, and that's the sort of things that are needed. You have to put young attorneys in a place where they can be forced to think on their feet, be forced to persuade. And, and they have to deliver the message and, and delivering coherent thoughts. Maybe that's the biggest problem with the pandemic. We haven't had to do that uh, yeah. hey, as much. Hey, hey, hey Brad, has, so speaking of that, does the, the, we just talked, you know, 2,100 hours, 2,500. Yeah. When you said 2,100 hours, Paul started laughing. Like, you know, he hits that by July. Um, does the billable hour model for the defense does, is that what leads to the lack of training opportunities because no one wants to take time off from billing or is there just no training? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, there are, there are a couple of reasons why the, the, the model doesn't work great for, for the defense. I mean, first of all, uh, your clients hire you, they don't hire your associates. Yeah. Right. And, and so you then have to find a way to deliver them the associates where the associate is well-rounded and trained. And so you're doing a lot of the work yourself or all the work yourself while trying, trying to train an associate. So you're really doing work and a half or sometimes twice the amount of work. So you've got, that's the first step. And so then you get a trained associate and you hope they stay with you. Sometimes they leave, sometimes you're glad they leave. I mean, the way that I learned was my, my firm had uh, once a week training. And it started your first week and it started with, here's how you do discovery. Here's how you do this and that. And it was Thursdays at four o'clock and they brought in a bar and the partners would get loaded telling war stories. And you learned more in that hour than you could ever learn in a year of practice. Um, and so you went all the way through. And then once you finished that sort of year of classes, they did an advanced trial skills and you stood up in front of the other associates who'd been handpicked and you did an opening and you did a voir dire you did a closing and you did a, a cross and you were nervous as hell because it was always videoed and you didn't want to look like an idiot in front of your, your peers. But my partners back then, those guys and gals just gave their time and said, I'm going to give a, an hour of my week once a week to this. And, you know, I'd love it for us to have a way where we can continue to, to, to 
um, inspire people to want to train. I love training. It's one of the best things we do. It's such a key thing, but our, our system's not set up to reward that. I mean, I think what we have to do as a defense bar generally is convince people that if you want to be a lawyer that has the hardest job in the world, be a civil defense lawyer. It's the hardest job in the world because the easiest job in the world is the plaintiff's personal injury lawyer. I love these guys who've done so well, ladies have done so well. It's the easiest job in the world. Somebody comes to you and says, "Marketing." I got somebody who's lost four limbs and because we were involved in a car accident with with your truck. It's like, what work are you going to have to put in plaintiff lawyer to to get a verdict (laughs) that's not $15 million? Because you're taking a piece of this injured person's, you know, justice, not Armageddon, their justice, you're taking 40% (laughs) of that justice. So me as a defense lawyer, you come to me and say, I got bad news for you. My truck hit somebody and they're a quadriplegic or a paraplegic. Now I need you to go defend us because we don't think the case is worth $60 million. We think it's worth 25. Go do your best. And, and, you know, we throw ourselves at the mercy and we have to come up with more creative stuff. We've got to, you know, get outside the box and the plaintiff bar is constantly adjusting there, the plaintiff bar is more in tune with what people want to hear and what's connecting with people. And because we don't do enough mocks, because we don't do enough focus groups, we, we lose those battles. We, we're, we're guessing. And the problem is they know exactly what lands and what doesn't. I mean, we should be doing focus groups on, on specific issues in cases. Yeah. You know, we ought to have them ready to go on the fly and say, hey, I need a focus group on the question of how should this particular witness approach yeah. this issue? Something no. as simple as that. We just, I mean, we don't do it and they do. And I, we're surprised at the results. And we're surprised. I, I think there's, yeah. there, there's one big other area of training where you can really get the associates involved and that's witness preparation. Yeah. I love witness preparation because it's the time just to hone my cross-examination skills, hone my deposition skills, hold whatever skills. But I know how to prep a witness. I, I love doing it. I will do it multiple times before a deposition. My associates don't always know that. And they don't always have the same experience level with writing out a cross-examination when they can't go off the cuff with it or go off a direct examination. Put them in that room. Let them try. You got to be there with them. So the, the, but that's another big area of, of training. You know, I, I agree. We don't do enough as, as a defense bar uh, to, to really add, you know, advanced training. And, you know, I've been hearing stories uh, from, from firms in Chicago where uh, there have been requests for firm trainings and they've been shot down by firm management because wow. no, you know, it's up to the partner supervising, supervising the file to train, to make sure that the work is being done properly. I, I don't know how you can do that. That just doesn't make any sense. You know, our firm, we have CLEs, at least one, in-firm CLEs once once a month. Plus, we, we encourage writing of articles and getting out there, going to conferences, doing all the things that, you know, some firms just don't ever do. Um, you know, I just, I, there's, there's a disconnect in the defense bar, you know, when you get that strata of defense lawyer. So, you know, it's going to be a problem, like you said, Bill, in eight to 10 years time. Not to, not to beat up on our profession too bad, but the one other thing that we've got to get better at is we do a really bad job of evaluating cases. Really bad. There are a lot of defense lawyers who 
you know, clients will tell you after the second glass of wine, nothing drives them crazier than when you tell me this is a defensible case and then 30 days for trial, you're going to get rocked with better settlements. We don't give honest value. I mean, apparently, because I'm hearing it from a lot of clients, and that's yeah. why you're parachuting into cases, Paul, and trying because yeah, I'm being told that this is a totally easy, winnable case, and then it turns out, nope, that was a total. I just wanted to kind of bait you to keep the case going. Yeah, we have to start thinking like plaintiff lawyers when we're evaluating cases. Truly think like a plaintiff lawyer. Say, all right, I'm going to ask for this amount, and guess what? Even though it's a broken hip, I'm going to get a life care plan, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. So you sit down and say, you know. Um, you know, Panish's office does a great job at mediations with, with showing you what the verdict is going to look like, right? And when you sit down and you map out the verdict, you sit there and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I, I see now how this is going to work. But everybody gets so in love with what they think their evaluation is, and they forget to really have, you know, sober eyes with it. Well, I'll tell you what, we're certainly going to piss off a few people with this podcast, but these are, you have to like, and Brad, you hit it nail on the head. You have to have difficult discussions to get through this. Okay. One more thing before we get uh, to fun time, we have a very fun exercise to conclude with. Uh, pa Paul sends me an article last week and absolutely just loses his mind. Loses. In fact, I think it was it from California, Paul, the, the contemporary, the, uh, contemporaneous yeah. objection i mean oh yeah yeah that's I, uh that's where it's from i mean what are you doing right i mean well, so no, it, was it yeah. i can't remember where it was from but yeah it had to do with contemporaneous objections let me look yeah and it's it's defense attorneys are afraid to object but man i mean if if the other side's trying to pull a I fast one on you i mean what do you i mean i mean Brad, I mean, you, you got to object, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to, you got to have. I mean, not to, you know. Of course, every judge is fantastic. Any judge listening to this, you might be the best judge we've been in front of. Yeah. But we have some judges that get a little bit fast and loose with some things, and some judges don't understand the evidence code the way that both sides wish they would. But the, you know, I think we have way too much of judges saying, "I'm going to let it in," and you can argue about whether or not it's it's something that should be considered by the jury or not. It's like, well, hang on a second. The whole point of the evidence code is for you to not let things in that shouldn't be considered by the jury. Uh, and judges go, well, I'm going to let it in. You can argue about, you can argue to the jury and the jury can decide. It's, I feel like that's kind of punting a little bit. I mean, look, I think part of it is you got to have objections. And I think part of it is you better know your objections. And if you don't have good objections to make and a basis to make them, then a jury's going to hate you. If you get up there and make the objection and you're compelling what the objection is and why, and the judge sustains your objection, Guess what? The jury's going to be like, oh, that guy knew what he was doing. If every time you get overruled because it's a bad objection or something that's not objectionable, the jury's going to look at you and be like, this guy idiot keeps making this thing take longer. <laughs> I mean, that's how it goes. I, I, I just found the article. It wasn't in, uh, in, in California. It was in the opioid trial where they're seeking $50 billion. <laughs> oh, and the article uh, highlights the, the, the idea of, well, Defense counsel didn't object to these these tactics. Uh, I, I can't. Uh, it makes me sick. Yeah, you don't have to be an asshole about it. You don't have to stand up, spittle flying out of your mouth, screaming during closing arguments or opening statement. But you got to make it for the record. And you know, it can be like you know, you know, Your Honor, I apologize. Uh, I have to object here. Not only. Do you come off a little more reasonable, but you break up the other side's flow and you preserve your record for appeal. 
contemporaneous objections are the only way uh, that you're going to create your record if things go badly. Uh, so I, I, the the last trial, the last jury trial I did before the pandemic, my my opening or not my opening statement, plaintiff's opening statement, pure reptile with a slice of we we as the lawyers were the impartial investigators, completely imper, you know improper argument. I objected over twenty times in an opening statement. The first three or four were overruled. Then I went 15 for 15. And wow. the judge ultimately wow. said to the plaintiff's lawyer, you have one sentence left. And she went over that by two words. And he said, I'll rise for the jury. And, and he, I swear he was this close to granting my mistrial motion. So it's not only, not only do you have to make the objection, you've got to go up to the judge right, right away and say, judge, this is improper. Now I have to make an argument, and, and you, you know this has got to be a mistrial. Uh, so you know it, it it's about making the argument, being aggressive, not being, you know, it comes back to the old school approach uh, of of our elders, of Brad's and my elders that are still working in the profession that don't want to upset anybody. That they're like, well, we, we, we don't want to upset the jury by objecting. That, that's, that's bad form. Or, you know, we don't want to argue damages because that, that the jury is thinking, uh, you know, we're conceding on liability. That both of those concepts, total malarkey. Yeah. Unbelievable. By the way, if you want to, if you want to hear something crazy, <laughs> California legislature is currently considering amending our wrongful death statute so that you can get damages for the pain and suffering that was uh, had by the decedent before they actually died. So the actual pain the person had when they, as they were dying, the actual suffering, the actual fear, you can get that as an element of damages. Pain and Welcome suffering. Welcome to Illinois. For- yeah, well, yeah, Illinois, California. Well, the survival action right there. It's well, the it's, time it's, before death. It's, it's not, but it's not. So the survival action is an economic damage issue right there. But this is this is actually the pain and the suffering that the person felt. Yeah, as they were the element for for us. It's total BS. And yeah, it's one of those things. I, I remember having a shooting case uh, that that went to trial about four almost five years ago now. Holy cow, I'm getting old. Uh, but yes, we had are. an expert, a biomechanic slash MD trauma surgeon that said, you know what, this bullet would have incapacitated immediately. There wasn't minutes upon minutes. Because, you, you know, it's one of those things where it's been an element of damages in Illinois, unfortunately. That um, we, we also get the nice thing that... Uh, if you were if you argue reduced life expectancy, that goes on the jury verdict form as a separate line item. So you, everybody's got to have a, a you know the quadriplegic that is never getting out of bed uh, and has got a G two for life normal life expectancy because you don't want them to say well uh, here's fifty million for reduced life expectancy. It's you know it's fun practicing here. Oh yeah. boy, yeah. unbelievable guy. This has been really a fantastic fantastic episode uh 100 this is great stuff um you guys have been terrific uh, on the show previously we want to keep having you on because we the goal and hopefully we're matching hopefully we're meeting our goal and i think we are based on the feedback uh we're the only guys that do this for, for i mean for, i mean i don't think there's any other 
civil litigation defense, you know, <laughs> podcasts that do this. And what we're trying to do is, you know, get this word out, have these discussions. So, you know, folks that listen, um, you can, you know, get some ideas, start thinking about, well, wait, maybe we should do some internal training. Maybe I should be objecting more. And so this is kind of a, um, a training within itself, hopefully to, to, to get things started. Um, now let's move to the, let's move to the fun stuff. Cause I got some surprises for you. I gave you, I gave you one question we're going to start with, but we're not going to finish there. All right. We're going to start with uncle Polly. I need your Super Bowl mat. And we're writing all this down, Steve, you write everything down because you're, you're not going to weasel out uh, of this. Okay. I need okay, Super Bowl matchup and then your winner. Georgia versus Cincinnati, Georgia. No, wait, that's not Super Bowl. Uh, I think it's going to be Pats, probably Pats, Bucks. And I think uh, the you guys suck. I, I think the Pats will win 27-24. Wow. Wow. That would be an epic matchup. Uh, uh, Nick Roush did email. He has the same exact matchup. And I think he's going Bucks. He's going Bucks. Brad Hughes, shake this thing up for me. Don't be like these guys. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I if, if the Patriots get a Super Bowl again, I'm gonna be so mad. I mean, so <laughs> so so mad. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be a, a hometown stand. I think my Chargers are gonna figure it out. The San Diego Superchargers of Los Angeles in the Super Bowl, and they will beat the Arizona Cardinals. Wow. Now that would be that was yeah. That's a that's a good one. Okay, Steve, you have the benefit of uh, listening to these guys. Where where are you going with this? Well, as, as I told Brad up top, actually, I'm going to be boring and go with Bucks uh, Patriots. However, I did at first initially think about the Chargers. I think Herbert's you know getting it going, and you got Eckler and a lot of the other weapons there. Um, it's my concern about the fact that how their defense plays. Uh, so I would say. Close second Chargers, but I unfortunately have to go with with the Patriots, Bucks, and as you know, as much as it makes me want to barf in my mouth, <laughs> I'm going to say the Bucks are going to win the Super Bowl, and Tom Brady's going to win another championship, and I'm going to be just as angry as I am every time Tom Brady wins a championship. Perfect. Well, I'm going <laughs> to shake this up. Uh, I'm going to go Patriots, Cowboys, and the Dallas Cowboys. How about them Cowboys? It's only been since 1990. What five? Um, they're due. They're overdue. Dak Prescott going to prove, hey, I deserve this paycheck. Dallas, why are you guys shaking your heads? Because because you because you watched you watched the football game last night. The yes. Saints are terrible. The Saints are terrible. Jason Hill threw as many interceptions as he he almost ran for yards. Okay. I, okay but I threw less Dallas than interceptions is- in high school and uh, like my whole career than he threw last night. Yeah. Okay. Now we're gonna go reverse order, starting with Steve Wood. NCAA football national champion this year. I've got to go Georgia. I haven't seen anything that makes me think otherwise. Brad? It's a tough one. So I'm I'm going to continue to be a contrarian here. Uh, (laughs) Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) I think. Sorry. I, I just said water like come so, out of my nose. Holy so shit. So let me walk you through this. And I'm a USC <laughs> guy. I'm a USC guy. So me saying Notre Dame is truly to be ultimate contrarian. Here's how. I think Alabama beats Georgia. Uh, sorry, no, I think Georgia beats Alabama. So Alabama's out. And I think that the uh, 
I think that they let in Notre Dame over Oklahoma State, even though Oklahoma State will win its conference. Oh, my God. Money, yeah. money, 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 money. Man, I, oh, Paul, <laughs> but this is, wow. Well, I'm not know, drinking any more water during this podcast. Play each other. I root for acts of terrorism uh, because I hate both schools with a, a fiery passion. But if it's not Georgia winning it, I think it's going to be the University of Michigan. And no. Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah let's go. Let's hear this. My oh, best yeah. friend is. I don't know how you're going to explain this Michigan. one. No. <laughs> so my, my Notre Dame call sounds great in comparison yeah, to Michigan. <laughs> And, and I will tell you this, I watched that Ohio State-Michigan game, and I actually turned it off at halftime because I was so confident that Michigan was going to win. I, and I'm the guy that would show up to a Michigan fan's Michigan-Ohio State party wearing a red sweater vest just to, you know, uh, rub their noses in it. I have never seen Michigan. Their offensive line is scary dominant and i thought ohio state was the best team second best team in the nation behind georgia and then i watched them just get absolutely annihilated and run over by michigan so i think if it's not georgia it's going to be michigan and i want to like totally clear the vomit out of my mouth wow we're ending this podcast the right this is great um i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a very disappointing i'm sorry i and i i have so many so many clients in Georgia and they're all texting me, go dogs. Nick Saban is going to figure this out. Alabama is going to be your national champion. And because now everybody's falling asleep on them. What they just pulled in Auburn was the most incredible thing I've seen all year. That is what's going to kickstart them and mark it down right now. Book it, call your bookie, go to my bookie, do whatever you got to do. Alabama is going to be your national championship. All right, last question. And this is the one dear to my heart. Steve knows exactly where I'm going. Exactly where I'm going. So bit reverse order. Uncle Polly. And if you say DePaul, I'm going to just click you right off of this. You cannot say DePaul. College basketball national championship this year. Who's going to win it? It's not DePaul. I haven't watched a single game. I, uh, I don't care. I don't Come on. Uh, it's not Illinois either. You can't say DePaul or Illinois. Yeah, just, I'm not going to say DePaul or Illinois. Um, don't say the D word. Don't do it. I'm not going to say Duke it's, either. It's my, it's my podcast. Yeah, I'm not going to. Who's even in the who's in the top five right now? Oh, I don't you're, even know. you're terrible. Like, I, I seriously have no clue. What the hell is uh, wrong with you? Let's go with something, uh, something off the wall and say um, Texas. That that was truly a pathetic, uh, pathetic pick. Uh, Brad, Brad, where, where are you going with this? Are you going west? Uh, are you going to West Coast, guys? Wait, wait. Oh think. yeah, yeah. My seven and zero USC Trojans will beat the Duke Blue Devils in the NCAA finals to win the whole thing. Wow! Holy. We are ranked. We were ranked twentieth a couple days ago. I, we've won the tournament. We played in before. We are the real deal. We will beat UCLA twice this year. UCLA is terrible. They are fake. <laughs> They are frauds. We will be. Uh, we made the Sweet 16 last year. We're a better team this year. Uh, this is the year USC brings home a title in men's basketball. We're a basketball school until Lincoln Riley uh, officially gets the team going. I would just like to put on for the record, now that I've had the opportunity to look, Texas is number seven in the nation. So 
Um, it's not completely crazy. Okay, I'm 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 gonna let that slide. Um, as long as uh, OJ Simpson is not attending your games, uh, Brad, I think you may have you may have a uh, lightning in a ball there, Steve Wood. I don't know. I, you know, and it seems like an easy one, but I think Gonzaga looks looks pretty good. Obviously, Michigan State playing really, really well lately. Shooting the lights out the other night. Defense is looking good. Got a turnovers are atrocious. They need to get better on that. Um, I actually would like to say that I could see them in the Final Four this year. Um, Purdue's really good too, but I think I'd have to end up going with Gonzaga with all their firepower is. As easy as it sounds because of how good they are right now, I think they still end up having the weapons to go through to the end. I think that's a great pick. Kanaski, as as much as I'd like to say the Tar Heels are going to get together, um, first-year coach, got some chemistry problems already. However, we did lay an ass-whooping on I Michigan loved it. the other night. I, I was there. It. I lost my voice. 20 other thousand people. I can get away with screaming like that. I do that at home, and I'm in the doghouse. I'm, I'm in a doghouse for a number of reasons, but uh, I, I can't go with the Tar Heels this year. My heart tells me yes, but my brain says no. I, I think this is the year Gonzaga delivers. That They've been there. They know what to do. They got the talent. Okay, maybe Mark Few likes to drink and drive a little bit. You know, give the guy a break. Okay, you know, he's just, you know, it happens to the best of them. Um, but we're going to go Gonzaga as your national champion. Uh, Steve, closing closing thoughts. I want to thank Steve Wood. Steve Wood has gone uh, really elbow to elbow with me on this podcast. It's a lot of work. We do this every week, sometimes two a week. And um, thank you, Steve. What I mean, going forward, I mean, we got to keep this thing going, huh? Yeah, we got a we got a several new uh, people lined up to come yeah. on the podcast. We're getting a lot of great feedback, as I said on a prior podcast. I appreciate everybody's listening to us. I appreciate all the feedback. We're reaching out. If, if they're attorneys that want to be on the podcast, I feel free to reach out to Bill B. Kanaski at courtroomsciences.com. Reach out to me, swood at courtroomsciences.com. We just love having attorneys on, picking their brains like these two yahoos that are on here right now, uh, <laughs> joining us for our 100th episode. Uh, like I said, near and dear to us so if you need to want to come on we want to look for guests but no it's been great i think we feel like we've gotten a lot of information out and i think that's one of the biggest things too is when we hear from people who have listened to the podcast and said you know what i've gotten stuff from it i changed the way i do things now i I look at things differently and and i approach things differently i think that to me has been the biggest thing that i've gotten a lot of gratification out of so i appreciate you having me on i appreciate everybody's going through this This is great. Brad, thank you. Paul, thank you. To our audience, thank you so much. We love doing this. We're going to keep it up. Thank you. You've been through, I mean, episode 100. I think this was, this could be the best one that we've ever done. Uh, So thrilled to be doing this. Go to courtroomsciences.com, read our articles, read the blog, you know, keep listening to the podcast. And uh, on behalf of uh, Dr. Wood, Bill Kanaski, checking out. Thank you so much. See you.